Uncovering History, a podcast of the OI. Welcome to the OI Podcast. I'm Steve Townsend, your host for this podcast. Today, we are in the CHD, that's the Chicago Hittite Dictionary Office. Uh, As I'm looking around here, I can see filing cabinets upon filing cabinets that are marked with uh, ranges of letters. They take up uh, two walls of this room. In between those, I can see a replica of a relief, which I'm led to understand is Tudalia, or Tudalia IV. Uh, The only thing I know about him is that he was defeated by the Assyrians under Tukulti Nunurta. I am here with my friend Emily Smith. I met Emily interviewing for a job here uh, when they asked me the question, do you know any ancient languages? And I said, am I supposed to? We talked a little bit and I asked Emily what she did at the Oriental Institute and she said, I'm a Hittitologist and I knew I was in trouble then. Emily, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I am actually a grad student here. I'm about to start my sixth year as a PhD candidate in cuneiform studies with a focus on Hittite and Anatolian languages. So in addition to Hittite, that includes Luwian and then some first millennium BC languages like Carian, Lydian, Lycian, but primarily Hittite. That is the language that we have the most texts from. Sort of in the process of procrastinating writing my dissertation by doing things like this. In addition to that, I work with you in the publications office. Where we work on publications and talk about our mutual love for games like Dungeons and Dragons, uh, which Emily is, I'm, I'm jealous to say, is playing more than I am now. Uh, right, yeah. I have three separate campaigns going now. I feel like a special pride in that since you used to work for Wizards of the Coast. Emily, I'm looking around at all these cabinets, all these different uh, ranges of letters. What can I find in these cabinets? As I said, this is the Hittite Dictionary Office. The Hittite Dictionary Project started here at the OI in 1975. This was originally the Chicago Acadian Dictionary Office. Once they finished that project, we moved in. So these filing cabinets that you see along the walls are where we keep the cards with the individual attestations of all of the words that go in the dictionary. As Hittite tablets are excavated, they're published in a couple different volumes, and every time a new volume comes out, the people who work for the dictionary go through and essentially make a card for every word. These are paper cards. They're now typed, but they used to be handwritten, and it will tell you like what the text is, what the tablet number is, and the citation, so like what line and what column, and then it will just give basically the context of one or two lines of each word. And then we file them all in these cabinets alphabetically. And whenever the people who write the dictionary, uh, so that would be Theo Vandenhout and Petra Hudehubura, um, who's my advisor, they will sit down with Richard Beale, who also works here in the dictionary, and they'll take all of the cards for a given word and they go through and then they'll sort them into, say, like sub-meanings or different nuances of meaning and then they'll write the dictionary entry from there. They're currently up to volume 54 of the KUB series, which is not the most recent, but fairly recent. And so basically every word that's been published in Hittite up through the 54th volume of the KUB series 
is in these filing cabinets all around us. Is this every word in the Hittite language in this room right now? It's every word that has been written down. So not every word, unfortunately. Um, Hittite has not been spoken since, well, since the second millennium BC, roughly. Um, Luwian a little bit later than that. But of course, all we have now are, you know, the texts. We don't have any native speakers or anything like that. And so unfortunately, what that means is that a lot of the language has been lost completely. Um, the only thing that we can use now is the parts of the language that were written down. When I, a few years ago, I was uh, reading ancient history as I want to do, and I did not know a whole lot about the Hittites. I realized that I'd, I'd, I actually knew more than I thought because I, I knew uh, you know various parts of the Bible where the Hittites were mentioned, but I, I didn't have any context for them. Can you give us just a, a brief overview of uh, who the Hittites were and what you love about studying Hittite? The Hittites were a people who inhabited an area of central Anatolia. Their capital was a city called Hattusha. It's a bit east of Ankara, so kind of in the central area of what's now Turkey. They spoke an Indo-European language. It's the earliest Indo-European language that we have a record of. It's the first Indo-European language that was spoken in that area. They sort of show up in the historical record in the old Assyrian colony period. And then they trace their origins to a city called Nesa. So they refer to their language as actually Nesili, which is the language of Nesa rather than as Hittite, although they refer to themselves as like the men of Hatti. At the time that the Hittites show up in this area, you have in central Anatolia, there's a non-Indo-European language called Hattic. And exactly what happened to the Hattic-speaking people that were already there and what the kind of degree of multilingualism is as something that I am not an expert in and is also something that I think is still not very well settled among people who are experts in it. There is some Hattic that occurs in Hittite texts, sometimes like in rituals and festivals, like somebody will say something in Hattic, but it's it's less well-known than Hittite, and that's saying a lot. The Hittites, at the height of their empire, controlled an area essentially from the Aegean Sea in the west into what would now be modern-day Syria. They essentially butted up against the boundaries of the Egyptian empire. As for why I'm studying them, I originally started out as a linguist. I got my MA in linguistics from the University of Colorado, and then I came to Chicago planning to apply to the linguistics department here. And then I ended up taking a course on linguistic methods and extinct languages, which is taught by my advisor, who's a Hittitologist and also a linguist, which I thought was really interesting. At the time, I had not I had not even heard of the Hittites. I had done some Persian, and so I looked at like Old Persian and Middle Persian for that class. But I thought what she was doing was really interesting. And she, of course, talked about the Hittites and Hittite language a lot as an extinct language that has been documented thousands of years ago and as the oldest Indo-European language that we have a record of, the oldest attested Indo-European language. There's just a lot of really interesting stuff to study there. They also were in contact with speakers of lots of other languages in the area. So, you know, in addition to Hittite and then Luwian, which is a related language, you have the Hattic influence, you have Hurrian, you have Akkadian. So just in a lot of different ways, it was really interesting from a linguistic perspective. And then as I started learning more about the Hittite people and history, that also is fascinating in its own way. Anyway, so I applied here, and I'm now currently doing a joint program in Hittite and linguistics. Back in the fall of 2019, before the pandemic put a stop to all our road trips, I sat down with Emily Smith in the LaSalle Banks room, and she told me a little bit about one of her most recent road trips. 
So I went with a few friends up to the Upper Peninsula of Michigan to see the Northern Lights. We stayed in a little town on the northern side of the peninsula. So we were right on the shore, um, the south shore of Lake Superior, where because of some sort of atmospheric conditions that I don't fully understand. The northern lights were supposed to be visible. And we went out two nights in a row to sit on a very cold beach in a place that was kind of secluded so we didn't have a lot of light pollution from the nearby little towns. And the second night we were out there, we did actually see some northern lights in the sky for about an hour or so. As you were telling me about that uh, during this week, I was thinking about what uh, the ancients might have thought if they saw such a thing in the sky and how they might have explained it. Of course, the, the people of the ancient Near East would not have seen the northern lights, but they would have seen other phenomena in the sky. And uh, they had a certain amount of science and, and knowledge, but you know, how do you explain phenomena like that? So there are actually a couple of attestations from Hittite texts of various kinds of astral phenomena. It's not always exactly clear what they're talking about. We know that like the Hittites, for example, they knew about meteors because they used meteoric iron sometimes. But in terms of things like you know, predicting eclipses or understanding exactly what a meteor or a comet is or what causes it, that was clearly beyond their conception at the time. So we do have some texts from the reign of Morshali II, who was a Hittite king from approximately 1321 to 1295 BC, of some different kinds of phenomena in the sky. Two that are particularly interesting pertain to what was probably a meteorite, that fell in Western Anatolia around the area of Ardzawa, which was a vassal state of the Hittite kingdom, sort of on to the west of the Hittite core land. And this happened while Morshali was in the course of a campaign against Uhazidi, who was the vassal king of Apasa, which is thought to be classical Ephesus. So can you tell us who is Mursili? He is my favorite of the Hittite kings and my cat is named after him. So Mursili was the son of Shupaluliuma and he was actually one of the younger sons. He had several older brothers. Two of them were sent to posts as viceroy and great priest in Syria. His brother Arnuanda was the crown prince. He had another brother who was sent to Egypt to marry, who was thought to be King Tut's widow, but was murdered by her enemies on the way there. Um, so Morshali was never supposed to be king. But when he was still fairly young, his father died from a plague. His brother Arnuanda became king. And then within a year or so, Arnuanda also became ill, probably from the same plague, and passed away. And suddenly, Morshali, this you know younger son of the king, is now sitting on the throne. So he wrote two series of historical annals, a 10-year annals and a complete annals. And in the beginning of his 10-year annals, he talks about how, you know, he became king. Before he became king, all of the enemy countries were hostile. His father dies. His brother becomes king. His brother dies. He sits down on the throne and all of these enemies of the Hittites, you know, are mocking him and they say... This one who has sat down on the throne now, he's a child. He will not save Hati land. And so he embarks on this 10-year campaign to sort of restore Hittite authority over these vassal states around their core land. And so it's in the course of doing this that he is marching to Arzawa to face off with Uhazidi, who has been causing trouble for him. 
And as he recounts it in his historical annals, he and Uhazidi have been corresponding. Morshali says, you know, that's it. We need to settle this. Let's fight. And we will let the storm god judge us. In terms of the text that we have from the Hittites, we have these historical annals. We have letters. We have myths. We have lots of, we have oracle texts. So we have all kinds of different genres of texts, but the letters and the historical annals are some of the main sources of the actual history of the Hittites and their interactions with other people in the area at the time. In his annals, they are they are heading towards Apasa, and Morshali says, when I arrived in Mount Lawasha, the mighty storm god, my lord, showed his divine guidance, and he hurled a Kamishana. Um, Morshali's army saw it, the land of Arzawa saw it, he says that this Kamishana struck the land of Arzawa, and it struck Apasha, the city of Uhazidi, and it made Uhazidi sit on his knees, and he fell ill. So this word Kamishana, there's a little bit of debate about what it means. In some contexts, it seems to mean something like a hearth log. It shows up in the disappearance of Telepinu, when Telepinu disappears from the land, and the the Kamishana are suffocated in the hearth. So like the, the hearths go out or are extinguished. But in this case, the general understanding is that it refers to a meteorite. And so this meteorite comes, he describes it as moving from the area of Hati towards Apasa, so having sort of an east to west trajectory towards the city. Subsequent to this, Uhazidi becomes ill, whether this is because of the effect of the meteorite on him, he suffers some sort of shock, or he just falls ill, and then that is attributed to the effects of the meteorite is unclear. But Morshali describes this meteorite specifically as having been sent by the storm god as a way of showing his guidance or, you know, judging, as it were. And subsequently, Uhazidi flees the city. Morshali ends up fighting and defeating his son, and then Uhazidi later passes away after fleeing. I can imagine that seeing something fall out of the sky right in front of you or striking you or striking your city, especially in ancient times, must have been something where you just, you know, it, it really would wake you up and make you believe in something that was bigger. I, I once stood in a uh, in a Starbucks that was hit by a tornado, and I can tell you that you really realize how small you are in the in the in the universe. Um, another time when I was in in Indiana, same state where I was hit by a tornado, uh, I um, it was the the day of the eclipse, and I drove to St. Louis uh, from the Gen Con Game Fair to St. Louis on, on the Sunday. And I stood in the parking lot of a gas station while I, the sky went black and it cooled off. And uh, I talked to another photographer friend. I was taking pictures of it. Um, who uh, he said bats came out. And uh, I can imagine that if you were uh, in the ancient world and then suddenly that happened out of nowhere, you would be, you know, how would you explain that? What would you think? The Hittites themselves, as far as we know, did not have the ability to predict things like eclipses, but they certainly noticed them when a full or near full eclipse happened. And so we have a record from one of Morshali's prayers where he talks about an event where the sun made a sign. Again, you know, they don't necessarily use very specific terminology, but this is taken to mean a solar eclipse. And in this case, this solar eclipse was interpreted as an omen portending that something bad was going to happen to the king. In Hittite texts, the king refers to himself with it's a combination of Akkadographic and Sumerographic writing, Dingir Utushi, which means my son. So the king himself is the son. And so, you know, if the son disappears, you can see how you would interpret that as saying something bad is going to happen to the king. In this particular case, 
It was actually the king's stepmother, the Tawanana, who was from Babylon, who interpreted this as saying, you know, this is a reference to the king. Like, does this not portend that the king is going to die? And this is relevant for the Hittites. Well, this is relevant for us and for the Hittites for a couple of reasons. The first thing to know is that the Tawanana, Morshali's stepmother, as he describes her, is almost like your stereotypical like Disney evil stepmother character. She had married Morshali's father, Shupaluliuma, sometime after Morshali was born, or subsequent to his marrying Morshali's mother. She was a later wife. And even after Shupaluliuma died, she retained some power as the, the queen consort, or the this Tawanana is like a name and a title. And Morshali goes into great details in some of his prayers to talk about how he and his brother, like they tried to be understanding of her, like they didn't do anything against her right away, even though he thought she was kind of plotting against him. But in this prayer, he says that he actually blames his stepmother for his wife's death. So sometime around his eighth or ninth year, his wife passes away. Uh, she becomes ill and then she dies and they do some sort of oracles that suggest that Tawanana is the one who is responsible for his death. So at that point, he exiles her. But in his prayer, he's talking about how she was making sacrifices against Morshali and his family, and then his wife died. And then as he's going on a campaign again, you know, the son makes this sign. And then the Tawanana says, well, surely, you know, doesn't this portend that the king is going to die? It's thought that that's part of the reason that Morshali wrote his 10-year annals. This was around his ninth year as king. And... Typically, kings don't write like an abbreviated set of annals and then a later complete set of annals, but because he thought he was going to die, it's thought that perhaps, you know, he wanted to get down a record of his first nine or 10 years of being king before that happened. But it's also significant to us as Hittitologists because even though the Hittites could not predict when solar eclipses were going to happen, we can and we can back calculate when there would have been a solar eclipse that would have been visible in that area. And then we can use that can give us like a reference point in our chronology to sort of hang things on because it's actually fairly difficult to figure out when things happened in terms of like a specific chronology and like what the dates were of these things. Keep your eye on the sky for signs and uh, and divine a meaning for how we should go forward in our future. Thanks for joining us, Emily. And we will see you next time on the OI podcast. For over 100 years, the OI has been a leading research center for the study of ancient Middle Eastern civilizations. Join us in uncovering the past and learn about the beginnings of our lives as humans together. Become a member by visiting oi.uchicago.edu slash member.